Romeo and Juliet is a huge part of why the Hay Festival exists at all. In 1969, my father was working for the maverick genius Sam Wanamaker, and they put up on a rough patch of ground at Bankside, a series of huge and beautiful in my memory tents, in which they hosted a summer season of Shakespeare plays. Now, the British theatre establishment wasn't terribly convinced or enthusiastic about this, so there were international companies who came. There were uh, a Hamlet production from Moscow, um, Romeo and Juliet from Belgrade, and I think the first performance I ever saw was in what was then called Serbo-Croat. I didn't understand a word of it, obviously, but I understood the emotion and the youth and the horrific tragedy, the, the wipeout of an entire generation with which the play ends. We're going to hear in this podcast from a number of academics who are going to talk about the play, the characters, the adaptations. But first, let's hear from Sarah Crossan, the Irish writer, who's going to talk about how first she encountered the play at school and what it means to her as a writer of verse. Shakespeare has meant so much to me. It was the first thing I read at school that focused simply on the language, where the story didn't really seem to be as important as the language and the rhythm of the language. And it was the thing that made me fall in love with poetry, which is now what I write. I write verse novels. And we read um, Romeo and Juliet, and I was in year nine and with Mrs. White, um, who was very scary, actually. But when she did Romeo and Juliet, she came alive and didn't seem so scary at all. And so because of her, I have whole sections of Romeo and Juliet living in my body. And I remember it not as an intellectual thing but as as part of my body I just sort of I remember it bodily and through my heart not as an intellectual process so I can say oh Romeo Romeo wherefore art thou Romeo deny thy father and refuse thy name for if thou wilt not be but sworn my love and I'll no longer be a capulet shall I hear more or shall I speak of this tis but thy name that is my enemy thou art thyself though not a Montague what is Montague tis not hand nor foot nor arm nor face nor any other part belonging to a man mm. oh be some other name what's in a name that which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet, and so Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. O Romeo, doth thy name, and for thy name which is no part of thee, take all myself. When I do school events, I recite this to the students um, to try and show them that if it's performed, you can sort of understand how she feels, that she's young and she fancies this guy, um, and she would give up everything to be with him because he's so hot. And that was something that I could really relate to as a young person. And I think it's something that young people can relate to, but it has to be performed. Those words on a black and white words on a, a dead piece of paper can't mean anything. You have to stand up and you have to, to say it aloud because it's, it's, you're meant to feel it with your body. And if you feel it with your body, I think you can then feel it with your heart. So I would encourage young people to to go and see plays, not to read, not to read the plays, and, and, and to perform them, and, and to have the words take over their bodies. Here's the Shakespeare scholar Germaine Greer on why it matters how old all these characters actually are. It's really important when you're doing Shakespeare that you don't abandon your common sense. So you don't let people tell you, oh, in the 16th century, girls got married aged 14. 
uh, English girls or Italian girls or any girls, uh, forget all that, just say to yourself, what's it like to be 14? Do you remember when you were 14? You probably do. Um, are you glad that you didn't end up marrying the guy you were crazy about when you were 14? What did you know about him? Who was he? You were a kid. Juliet is a kid. And what's extraordinary about the play is that Shakespeare has put his first great heroic blank verse in the mouth of a 14-year-old girl. That's an extraordinarily subversive thing to do. She's not any kind of a conventional hero. She's a girl whose family is about to marry her against her will, a girl whose mother is only 28, who has, who, with a father who hasn't danced in 40 years, old man, married to young woman, about to marry a teenager to Paris, or, to, or she's going to marry herself, to Romeo. How old is Romeo? If you look at the play, you don't know. Shakespeare tells you 10 times that Juliet is 14, but he never tells you how old Romeo is. What if Romeo is 30 years old? One thing is clear to me, Romeo is a dork, but she loves him. Why does she love him? Because she's exercising her own right to choose under duress, in the wrong situation. There, there can only be a tragic outcome. And all the way through, Juliet grows as a character and makes extraordinary speeches, fights an extraordinary battle, is rejected by her father and by her neurotic mother. One of the best commentaries on Romeo and Juliet is Baz Luhrmann's film, because Baz Luhrmann's got it all. He's understood what Shakespeare's talking about. He's talking about manners, falsity, image, appearance. There's not a real fight between the Montagues and Capulets. It's like a gang fight in LA, or Venice Beach. It's a gang fight between kids who have more in common than they have to separate them. It's more about your life than you think. Here's Germaine Greer again on the crucial role that language plays for a character's development in the theatre. You've got an old man, young wife, um, who doesn't know her daughter, who has left her daughter to be brought up by a nurse, um, and who enters the room and is at, ill at ease. Um, and finally, there's, there's the dreadful business for Juliet, who I think is down, I think Juliet's downstage. I mean, that's hard to say in the Globe, but uh, Juliet's listening to them talking about her. And when I talk to schoolgirls about this, I say, you know, aren't you sick of having people talk about you when you're in the room? And this is the thing that happens to Juliet. So what passes across her face is all those reactions. And it's a nurse going on about, oh, yes, she's 14. I remember I just laid wormwood to my dog and all this sort of business. And then they have the big joke that she fell over and had a lump like a pigeon's egg on her head. And they all said, thou wilt fall backwards when thou comest to edge, wilt thou not, Jewel? The last thing you want at 14 is for other people to discuss your sexuality. Would you mind? And there is poor old Julia, Julia thinking, where is this going? And then her mother says, you know, hmm, how stands your disposition to be married? And Juliet says, it is an honour that I thought not of. And says, but you know, if, if that's what you 
want me to do? I guess I'll do it. And the mother then utters a sonnet, a bad sonnet. Now, one of the important things about understanding Shakespeare is it's not a novel. You can't take out the characters and psychoanalyze them and do all that. The characters are what they say. They are their way of speaking. Um, and when the mother sort of says, well, you know, read all the book of young Paris' face and find delight there writ with beauty's pen. Examine every married lineament and see how one another lends content. I mean, Juliet could be, what? <laughs> what is all this? Can you just look at me and speak to me, please? But that's not what this family is like. The mother is doing her set oration, and Juliet is realizing that the die is cast. And what is really fascinating about that is that then, when a man makes love to her for a millisecond, she's his, because it's her secret, it's her thing. It's a way of escaping from them. Here's a final clip with Germaine Greer schooling me about things that I haven't read properly in the play but have assumed from productions that I've seen are making a brilliant point about what an Elizabethan audience would have seen in the term friar. Romeo and Juliet ends in a series of coincidences. So the inevitability thing doesn't happen. You can't see it coming, except that you know that any relationship that begins in deception with a masked man, I mean, depends how you do the play, but when he begins to talk to her about, you know, palm to palm, his holy palmer's kiss and all that, he's masked. She well, can't even see his face. You say when he talks to her, but that, that exchange is incredibly quick. And they're completing each other's rhyme schemes, each other's lines. It's the sexiest sparring, surely. He, oh, he's not else? seducing her. She's really up for it. And she gives as good as she gets, Well, surely. up for it is not necessarily what she has to be. Um, it's down for it that she probably has to be. With it. She's with him. <laughs> no, no, I'm teasing. Uh, well, the <laughs> they play that game, but he is masked, and she has... He's also masked. Who if knows? he is, she is. It's a masked no, no. ball. Well, Do women not wear masks at balls? No, no, they mask. If you remember, in the play, when they're on their way into the party, because they're not invited, they're gatecrashers, they put on masks. She's the daughter of the house, and they know who she is. That's how it works in the play. Ah, sorry, I've just always assumed everybody was masked. Mm, well, there might be. You could try okay, a production whatever. like that, when but it go? might end up in a bit of a muddle. Anyway... <laughs> So you, Heaven forfend. you have the moment where, sh where she leaves the room and asks, who is, who is he? And says, well, if that's the case, my, my uh, wedding bed is likely to be my grave. I'm in serious trouble here. I've... But the thing about it is she's given herself to him. Now, you may say, that's nuts. Yeah, but 14-year-olds are nuts, you know? Um, they've met a pop star at a concert, and he said something to them in the toilet. And they believe it. It's a bit like that. She, she has given herself away, and because she's adolescent, because she's so earnest, because her emotions are so unformed as yet, um, that's it. She's finished. That's done. She goes to her apartment and then tells the knight 
that she's in love with Romeo. Romeo is coming towards her, masked, and she says, who are you who stumbles on my counsel? Then she commits herself to him, and then the die is cast. But what is extraordinary is then what happens when everything goes wrong. And then Juliet enters into that blank verse, that extraordinary verse that talks about her images of horror, what life will be like in the grave, um, talks about the importance of the death of Tybalt, um, and all the time holding the stage, this single female juvenile figure entering into all the horrors of this situation, and you've got to be prepared for her to go and put herself in the hands of the friar. Now, generally speaking, we think of friars as kind of jolly people that end up on, you know, labels of baked beans. <laughs> as opposed to guys who dabble in narcotics and have a really unfortunate... But also, there hadn't been a friar seen in England for 50 years when this friar appears on the stage. So here's an exotic. Yeah. And, and a figure they've been taught by anti-Catholic propaganda to be afraid of. And he then con constructs the plot of the fake death. And Juliet doesn't make it. There's another point to be made here about the friar, and it's about his intervention in the plot, and particularly the way in which he comes up with this scheme to feign death and then resurrect her a couple of days later. It seems transgressive now, but think what it must have felt like to an Elizabethan audience who were religiously passionate. There was a fervour about their Protestantism and Catholicism. It must have seemed completely heretical. Here's Abigail Rokerson Woodall from the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford-upon-Avon with a beautiful insight into why it matters who played Peter in the first Shakespeare productions and what that means for the integrity of the text. Well, you may or may not know that Romeo and Juliet was published in a number of different texts. In fact, the play was published in quarto versions in Shakespeare's lifetime. Now, a quarto version is a smallish book. It means the paper's been folded four times over. And 18 of Shakespeare's plays were published in quarto during his lifetime. And then another 18 um, were published, along with those 18, in the first folio of 1623. So... Romeo and Juliet, the first quarto is what's known as a bad quarto. We've got a few of these. Hamlet's got one. Um, it seems that they've been reconstructed in some way from memory, either by actors or by somebody who watched the show, um, from a text which was cut and adapted for performance. Why is this interesting? Well, it's interesting because it tells us that even during Shakespeare's lifetime, Plays were being cut and adapted. Practically every time you see Romeo and Juliet, uh, a film, or any time you go and see a theatre production, that production will be cut and adapted by the director in order to make the sorts of points that he or she wants to make. And those sorts of things happen during Shakespeare's lifetime. And it's important for us to remember that a play is not 
a fixed entity. It's always going to be subject to interpretation and it's always going to be open to various changes and cuts. After the um, first quarto, when the second quarto was published, it's thought that this was published from Shakespeare's papers. Why is this interesting? Well, one thing I find particularly interesting is that in Act 4, when we would expect the character of Peter to enter, instead we get a stage direction that says, enter Will Kemp. Now, this suggests that Shakespeare, as he was writing, knew who he was writing for. He knew that he wanted Will Kemp, the actor, to play the role of Peter. Now, Peter's not a very big part, and Will Kemp was the star of the company. He was the company's star clown. So this tells us that maybe, firstly, Peter was to be seen as the clown figure in Romeo and Juliet. And secondly, maybe that it was a, perceived as a bigger and more interesting part than we now see it as. There's, there's evidence that the clowns were allowed to improvise. They could have made up some of their own words. So when Peter reads out his letter of all the people who are going to come to the ball early on, maybe he could have expanded on that like a stand-up comedian, just having a few prompts from the writer and then expanding and turning it into his own sort of stand-up routine. I love the idea of Will Kemp, the kind of Billy Connolly of his day, being given free license to riff around the themes of the play, to just indulge in some spectacular improv with the audience. Adaptation and flexibility is absolutely key to the durability and popular appeal of this play. Here's Dr. Erin Sullivan, the Shakespeare scholar from the University of Birmingham, to talk a little bit about some of the great filmic adaptations of the play. Looking for ways in which to think about why these families are feuding has been a common theme of many productions over the year. We're not really given an explanation in the play itself, but that's something that directors have brought to it. I think it's something that we often want as audiences. So other productions that have looked to social, religious, racial division as a way of explaining uh, the, the conflict in the production between the families are some of the images that I have up here, a Romeo and Juliet that features an Israeli and Palestinian couple. Um, the one up in the top left-hand corner was performed in Stratford a few years ago. It was called Romeo and Juliet in Baghdad. It was an Arabic translation in which Romeo and Juliet were Sunni and Shias. Um, in the top right-hand corner in the United States, a production that depicted Romeo and Juliet as part of, linked to families that were different gangs. Um, and then in the bottom right-hand corner, very famously, West Side Story, uh, which depicts uh, the conflict as one between these two different cultures, um, the Puerto Ricans, uh, and I suppose it's a mix of Italians and Polish immigrants who are in New York battling over West Side. And it's interesting with that production and with some other adaptations, sometimes the title does get changed to zoom out from the two lovers to actually the place in which they are. So it's more a collective story about social conflict. Um, obviously, West Side Story is not a, a you know, production using the original language itself. It rewrites the play. Um, and there's been many, many, I won't go into detail with all of them, but many different reimaginings that rewrite the play in one way or another. Um, and the top image here is from another production of West Side Story. 
and two in the bottom here that are ballet renditions. And I think you know it's been done in opera and music, all different kinds of forms. But ballet and, and dance is perhaps especially interesting in the sense that it's a production that has very physical scenes. We've already talked a lot about the violence, the brawling, the youthful energy, the way in which that can be depicted through the body um, is very powerful. And although, of course, you lose the language, perhaps you gain in terms of the phys physical expression. Um, but to move to some of the more familiar recent film productions, um, 1968 is uh, Zeffirelli's famous film version, um, which a few key things that it does with it, you know, it very much embraces the Italian setting. Zeffirelli goes back to Italy to look to different sites to situate Romeo and Juliet in, in this particular uh, visual scene. Um, it emphasizes the youthfulness of the lovers, very famously, the two central leads were played by actors who were themselves very young. Um, it highlights their sensuality, their sexuality. Um, it has a kind of Renaissance opulence, a very strong uh, aesthetic and sensual vision. Um, if we move on about 20 years later or so, or no, 30 years later, to Baz Luhrmann's 1996 Romeo plus Juliet, it also emphasizes youthfulness, but in a slightly different way. Um, it sets uh, Verona in a kind of mixed up, sort of juxtaposed Verona beach kind of setting, elements of California, elements of Mexico. It, as you can see here, it clearly updates uh, the, the historical setting, famously swapping swords for guns. And it has a very self-conscious postmodern element to it with um, this bottom image here is uh, the, the boys passing in front of this wherefore l'amour, l'amour um, image that is reminiscent of the Coca-Cola branding. There's lots of examples in this production that take bits of image or text that are familiar from global uh, life and, and reorient them, put them elsewhere. So um, we have things like in the bottom left-hand corner, this very media-saturated uh, culture that we get at the very beginning with the prologue being spoken to us from a news reporter. Um, you can't see it in these images, but in the top left one, we have uh, Romeo and Benvolio going into the Globe Theater, which ends up being a pool hall where they have their exchange about Rosalind. So it has a kind of knowing reference to the world of Shakespeare, the Globe that we're hearing about, um, but reoriented, the merchant of Verona Beach. Um, and in the top here, again, text on the screen, and the Capulets and Montagues rendered as a kind of corporate rivalry. Um, interestingly, it's a very image-saturated, uh, and some would say kind of branding and advertising-saturated landscape, and yet when we get to the central lovers, um, we get a slightly different kind of visual palette. Um, water is used throughout the film to characterize both of them. We encounter Romeo looking into the ocean in the beginning, um, Juliet gazing into, into the water in the bath. And we have a similar image with Romeo at a different point in the film. And then Romeo and Juliet first seeing each other through this watery uh, tableau. Something that is then reiterated in their balcony scene, which mostly takes place in a swimming pool. Um, and I think it, again, uh, sort of harkens back to some of those lines I quoted earlier where Juliet was talking about my bounty is as boundless as the sea. Kind of openness of water, the fluidity, the mixing of their two identities together, I think is, and it's one thing that film can do, whether we're talking about the Zeffirelli or the uh, Lerman version, to use um, you know, visual textures, sounds to create 
a world that mixes the text in, but certainly with film and often with um, even on the stage, the text is cut down quite severely. Most films use maximum of half of the lines from the play, often more like a third, um, but they bring in other elements. Shakespeare himself was adapting the tragical history of Romeos and Juliet of 1562 by Arthur Brooks and gives rise even now to always relevant adaptations in the modern world from, you know, the Gnomeo and Juliet film to Mallory Blackman's staggeringly brilliant Noughts and Crosses. Another writer whose life was profoundly affected by this play the Bangladeshi novelist Tamima Anam. So Shakespeare gave me permission to commit my first real act of transgression. Um, I was 14 years old and I was cast in my high school production of Romeo and Juliet and I was cast as Juliet. Um, we lived uh, in Thailand at the time and my parents belonged to a small community of expatriate Bangladeshis. Um, and they all came to see, they were all going to come and see the production. Um, my drama teacher was really into method acting and she encouraged me and the guy who played Romeo to um, kiss on stage. <laughs> um, not just like a little bit of kissing but like real kissing. So um, the play opened, uh, my parents were in the audience, all their friends were in the audience and I did this thing that was extremely unusual for someone of our community. Um, and I could almost hear an audible gasp coming from that side of the audience. Um, and I knew everyone was watching and that they would be very disapproving, but because it was Shakespeare and because I had been cast as Juliet, no one could really say anything. Um, so it was a really, um, it was a moment of transgression and I think pave the way for me to commit other acts of transgression, but only in the most kind of cultural and intellectual ways. And so I've always been grateful to Shakespeare for that. And of course, Shakespeare and I have had an a, a intimate relationship and a close relationship ever since, but that was really the beginning. Oh, I can't leave without including this glorious clip from Stephen Fry's 2016 gig at Hay, in which he talks about Romeo and Juliet and you know, the really crucial issue of timing in theatre. When talking about love, we obviously have to address Romeo and Juliet. And here I come to something that to me is immensely important in Shakespeare, and that is form. And form is a very strange word because one is bound to say, oh God, what is, what is form? I mean, form you could also express, as Oscar Wilde did, as mode. That's to say, obviously, you have comedy and you have tragedy, the best-known forms. Um, Polonius in, in, in Hamlet has a very comic speech about pastoral, historical, historical pastoral, and so on. But essentially, um, comedy is a form which suggests that society has reason to be optimistic, that no matter how pessimistic a character is, no matter how much they want to forge their own world, society embraces them and it almost always ends in a marriage. A mask of Hymen in, the, in, in, in a couple of Shakespeare plays, um, like As You Like It. Um, and very few people are left out of the celebration of marriage. Um, there's um, a few. 
Malfolio in 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 in, in Twelfth Night and uh, um, and and a few others in. Uh, in, in The Tempest and so on, who no longer speak, Iago, obviously, but Othello isn't a comedy, or is it? Which is the most famous love tragedy of them all? Well, Romeo and Juliet. But let me read you a little from one of my favourite Shakespearean critics, a really extraordinary man, Tony Tanner, who undertook the extraordinary task of writing a preface for every single Shakespeare play. He writes this, Romeo and Juliet fails of being a comedy by something under a minute. Do you know what he means by that? Juliet wakes up from her pseudo-death 27 lines after Romeo has committed suicide. If Romeo had not committed suicide, had just had a slightly longer speech, she would have woken up, they would have hugged each other, and it would have been one of the most charming comedies in all drama, instead of which he commits suicide, which almost ought to be comic in itself, it's so preposterous. As a reason for including the play in a volume of Shakespeare's comedies, Tony Tanner says, this may seem at best a rather perverse piece of special pleading. The first good quarto announced it clearly enough as the most excellent and lamentable tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. And by the end of five, the, fen, the five main protagonists are dead. Of course it's a tragedy, but it contains within it all the lineaments of a classical comedy. And that's a point that is really important to me. Every time you see a Shakespeare play, I think it's worth being aware of just how much he exhibits interest in the forms. The fact is, he understood that we human beings tend to puff ourselves up as heroic. We are heroes in our own life story. We are solipsistic, if you like. So when fun is made of us, it is a disaster. It's a tragedy. To everybody else, it's probably a comedy. Thank you for listening to this podcast supported by our friends at Bailey Gifford Investment Managers. You can find 8,000 more recordings on the Hey Player pages of the website. Please follow us and give us your feedback on social media. And join us next week for an in-depth look at artificial intelligence.